Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast, where we continue to bring you the latest stories, trends, and perspectives on international climate issues. This is Alex Maroner from the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Ingrid Timbo. Hi Alex. Hi everyone. Thanks for checking out Climate Ready. If you're taking the time to listen to this podcast, chances are you're a big fan of the environment. I know we certainly are. I think you all will be really interested in today's topic because today we take a deep dive into the theory and practice of a range of ecosystem-related water management approaches that are commonly called nature-based solutions. You can call it ecosystem services, you can call it green infrastructure, or you can even call it the Gaia theory. However you classify it, we want to look at the role of natural systems when it comes to water management and the adaptation services they provide. We've got so much to cover on this topic, in fact, that we couldn't even contain it into one single episode. We'll be breaking this up into a two-part episode. In part one, we'll begin with the basics of nature-based solutions, and then discuss a new framework designed to better incorporate ecosystems into the water management design and planning process. In part two, also available now, we'll move from theory to practice, hearing about an innovative water reserves program in Mexico and an ongoing project to assess the role of these reserves in assisting natural and human systems as they adapt to climate change. With so much to cover, let's go ahead and jump into part one. The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal international network of water and climate professionals working to develop, enable, and mainstream climate change adaptation and mitigation practices within water resources management, decision-making processes, policies, and implementation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. For those of us working on climate or environmental issues, nature-based solutions can seem like a win-win option. But how can we take an objective look at their relative benefits when compared to traditional gray infrastructure? For that discussion, we turn to Dr. Ted Grantham, an Assistant Cooperative Extension Specialist with the University of California's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Ted is also a faculty member of the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at University of California, Berkeley, where he researches the relationships between hydrological and ecological processes related to the management of water resources. Welcome to the podcast, Ted. Thank you. So Ted, green infrastructure, to some extent, it's really been around for centuries or even millennia. In the field of climate adaptation, its prominence is more of a recent development, though. So we wanted to start with everyone on the same page when it comes to terminology. What comes to mind when you think about green infrastructure, either in terms of its definition or maybe some examples of these assets? Well, there's a huge range of, of, of types of, of green infrastructure. Um, I like to think of green infrastructure as more of a, a process or approach rather than a specific product or, or outcome because what we what we tend to see label green infrastructure is often in, in the built environment when truly what we're, we're seeing are, are more hybrid approaches that tend to blend um, traditional 
maybe perhaps gray infrastructure elements with uh, with green or greener um, or softer path um, approaches. The examples of, of, of green infrastructure that are probably most well known include coastal you know protection approaches like mangrove forests or other types of bu- uh, buffers along coastal shores to prevent some of the limit some of the impacts of, of, of wave damage for example um, these can occur in very much in the urban landscape around um, the management of storm storm water so things like detention ponds or natural uh, features to deal with stormwater quality or quantity. And then uh, around flood protection, this is a, a, a big issue in, in a lot of the areas um, that we're seeing a lot of exciting work around green infrastructure. So reconnecting rivers with their floodplains to increase the area that, that water has to go during these flood periods that can be much less costly and, and involve less risk than sort of traditional gray approaches using you know large levees or large dams, say, to, to try to control floods. What are some of the climate adaptation benefits of using these types of nature-based solutions? I would say the first benefit of these nature-based solutions tends to be cost. When we look forward to a future under climate change, there are, there are a lot of different directions that, that our, our weather can go, and we actually don't really know exactly what our, our, our storm regimes, our drought regimes will look like in the future at the scale that we make these management decisions. And so when we um, invest in large water infrastructure projects, we have to make some assumptions about what the future um, is, is going to be. And when, under, under climate change, when we, we have less um, confidence in those assumptions, uh, these other approaches become make a lot more sense ec- economically. Uh, the other advantages, they tend to be uh, more flexible, again, because they involve less uh, sort of capital investment at, at one period of time. If they're damaged or if they require modification over time, it opens up the, the, the door to do that. Once you build a dam, for example, you're pretty much going to be stuck with it for, <laughs> for on, you know, on the scale of, of you know, 30 to 100 plus years. You know, when you're talking about green infrastructure, uh, whether that's you know, some sort of flood protection system or... Uh, water retention pond or whatever example you want to give, there's a lot more flexibility in how you manage that in the future because you're not really stuck with that, uh, with that asset over the long term. You mentioned the economic lens as a way of looking at environmental systems. What are some other ways that we can integrate ecosystems into long-term water management planning? And in particular, how can we work new angles into a field that's often been driven by engineers and economists? Yeah, well, I did in answering that previous question. I did really focus on the economic aspects of or benefits of, of these nature-based solutions. But clearly, many of these these approaches, as the name suggests, uh, do provide a host of of what we think of as sort of traditional environmental benefits. And I think the flood uh, management example is probably maybe one of, one of the best examples because uh, when we when we actually restore floodplains or reconnect rivers to their historic floodplains, not only do we provide these say flood retention benefits that have direct you know, sort of economic benefits, but uh, we also tend to restore these these very uh, valuable and productive ecosystems uh, that can benefit fish, that can benefit wildlife, that can benefit provide water quality benefits and a whole host of other sort of what we think of more traditional environmental services or ecosystem services. When it comes to integrating ecosystems into water management and really starting the conversation with engineers and economists, I think 
if we can demonstrate that these approaches are, are are cost effective, I think I think that has to be a starting point. I mean, if if they're going to be perform less reliably or or be as more if not more expensive, then we're not going to get very far. So I think we have to continue to develop pilot projects and, and rigorously analyze the performance of these these, these alternative approaches uh, to really get our foot in the door. Perhaps at the same time, we also need to really clarify and to educate engineers and economists on what are the, the, the key principles that control the, the structure and functions of ecosystems. I think that ecologists think about water and and the role of infrastructure in a very in a very different way and have a very different vision of the way that these complex ecosystems uh, work whereas the you know traditional engineering approaches tend to be a bit more sort of reductionist and so I don't think there's I guess I just think there's there's a need to to try to bridge some of these disciplinary gaps and on the basic principles that govern the way we think about these systems. To be fair, we should point out that ecosystems aren't entirely left out of the planning and design process. However, they're often constrained or relegated to just one particular aspect, environmental impact assessments. How effective do you feel that these traditional assessments are at integrating ecological needs into projects? I think it's been fairly problematic. Um, In most cases, the environmental impact process really starts after the project has been designed at a fairly fairly late stage. You know, while there may be alternative project alternatives that are evaluated simultaneously, in most cases that scope of alternatives is fairly is, is fairly restrictive. And so the opportunities to really change the project or really improve the project to mitigate or avoid environmental impacts is often quite quite limited. And these impacts assessments really tend to focus on, you know, changing the, the, the project in, in relatively small ways to limit impacts. And and honestly, they often tend to focus more on the mitigation that will be required to compensate for for the environmental damages associated with the project. So I think that they're 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 fairly problematic in that respect. And I think it'd be much more it would be really ideal, I think, to try to incorporate environmental impact assessments sort of much earlier in in the design phase of the project and you know everything from defining project objectives and alternatives to you know thinking about site you know site location and and uh, you know how how a project will be designed to the site scale as we're shifting uh, towards seeing more green infrastructure utilized in cities and elsewhere it's becoming even more important to make sure that we understand the benefits as well as the limitations of these assets. Ted, you were part of a team that developed a framework for facilitating trade-offs between infrastructure and ecological indicators. This is known as eco-engineering decision scaling, or EADS. Can you explain a little bit about how this methodology works in terms of evaluating environmental impact uh, of alternative decision pathways? Sure. So this this framework really has two, I think, two important components. So the first is that it it builds upon a, a an existing framework known as decision scaling, where the outcomes or the consequences of different decisions are are explored across a range of, of plausible future climate conditions. And so the idea here is that you know a water manager or a natural resource manager might lay out a series of 
um, decision alternatives to reach some some desired outcome. This could be, you know, water supply security uh, related outcome. It could be something related to some environmental objective, like maintaining a population of of endangered fish or, spe- or some other species. And through this analytical approach, the idea is that we then explore how our ability to meet those desired objectives change um, if the climate were to shift in particular um, particular directions. One important aspect of this approach is that we actually don't uh, restrict our analysis to a, a subset of global climate model projections for, for a study system. We can actually explore a wide range of plausible futures. And the focus then becomes identifying sort of the, the suite of conditions under which we we either achieve or fail to achieve those desired management objectives. The novelty, I guess, in this approach, or what distinguishes this approach from, from other approaches, is that it really puts the emphasis on, on the decision or this, the suite of decisions that are being considered, and it takes emphasis away from predicting the future, uh, which we, we don't do particularly well, given the, the vast uncertainty that we have around the, um, our, our global climate system and the possible trajectories that climate may take, uh, depending on our, our emissions scenarios. So again, this general approach um, focuses on identifying the circumstances under which we, we either achieve or fail to achieve a, a set of objectives that we set out in the, you know, early in the process. The second, I think, really important feature of this, of this framework is that it allows for a comparison of different and perhaps competing environmental objectives or uh, management objectives. And these could include both traditional engineering objectives as well as perhaps less traditional environmental environmental objectives. So we can explore sort of simultaneously how different decisions will affect different outcomes. Uh, An example that we've given in the past has to do with uh, you know, meeting flood control objectives and meeting desired floodplain ecosystem uh, restoration goals. The the approach relies on our ability to explore multiple objectives and then to to really evaluate whether or not those those different objectives are are um, in conflict, um, whether they're they're in fact synergistic, and really understanding what what trade offs uh, might be associated with pursuing different decision pathways. So it's really an exploratory, you know, approach to, 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 to determine how, um, how different decisions, what the outcomes of dis- different decisions might be across um, a range of, of issues that might be of interest to managers in a system. What's the best context for applying this EADS approach? Is it more particularly well-suited when it comes to planning and designing green versus gray or hybrid infrastructure? Well, it can be really applied to any type of project. I think it's particularly well-suited for exploring nature-based solutions where there may be a set of, of environmental objectives that are, you know, that, are, that are either targeted or you know, desired in, in some way. So uh, again, this example of, of floodplains, we may want to both achieve flood control or, or flood protection goals as well as achieve um, a healthy, you know, functioning floodplain ecosystem. And that's a sort of a classic green infrastructure type uh, problem or approach that, that would lend itself very well or re- very readily to this EADS analytical framework. So 
I think that it's it's particularly well suited for these uh, these types of projects that are trying to achieve multiple objectives um, and not just you know really focused on the, the more traditional engineering uh, goals. What are some of the challenges or limitations you've seen so far in early applications of EADS? Well, I mean, one of the biggest challenges of, you know, kind of bringing this to, to larger, applying this approach to larger scales really has to do with the data that we have available to to inform the, the analysis. And, you know, as with any, I guess, modeling exercise, the, you know, sort of the quality and the confidence that you have in your, in, in, in your results, you know, depend entirely on the, you know, the quality and the confidence that you have in your, in, in your data. Exactly. I think it's important to identify challenges and limitations early on to help you refine and also adapt the EADS process. And really, a framework like EADS is needed now more than ever, as more and more countries and cities turn to green infrastructure. With that in mind, how would you like to see eco-engineering decision scaling utilized going forward, kind of in terms of the big picture? Well, just generally speaking, in the broader world of you know, sort of climate adaptation planning, and particularly in the water sector... What I like about EADS and, and where I think it might be particularly useful is that it, again, it, it, it focuses the attention on, on the decisions that are being made and not focusing necessarily on what we think the future will be. It seems that many of the conversations around you know, planning for climate change or adapting to climate change become, I think, too focused on trying to predict with certainty what what the world will look like in, in 2050 or 2099. And I think by focusing more on the decisions and, and what and how, how robust those decisions might be under um, you know, alternative futures is just a, uh, a more helpful way of engaging with the problem. The second, I think, really beneficial, potentially useful aspect of EADS um, in informing these green infrastructure conversations has to do with setting of, of, of objectives. You know, in traditional kind of water engineering, there there's a well well defined set of objectives relating to say, you know, water water supply reliability or metrics related to the expected damages that are either you know incurred or avoided uh, by particular projects. But where we want to start incorporating ecosystems, I think it it leads us to to having a an important but frankly very difficult conversation about our objectives or our vision for um, for for the environment, and what I mean by that is through this process, we actually have to make uh, very explicit statements about the the, the types, um, uh, the form of the environment, and the and the the nature of the of the environmental features and services that we really want to to preserve or to manage manage for into the future. And that's not a conversation that I think we're very, you know, used to having. In most cases, when we talk about, uh, you know, water and in the environment, we talk about, you know, avoiding species extinctions or, or minimizing environmental damage. But we don't really talk about what what we really want these environments to look like and, and what it, what it might take to realize those, uh, those those visions. And I think that given that, you know, in, in the context of freshwater ecosystems, we have we have truly transformed our, our freshwater ecosystems at a global scale. Um, and we're never going back to, a, you know, quote unquote, natural state. Given the degree of alteration of these systems, we really need to, uh, I think, take a step back and think about what 
elements of these systems do we really want to try to preserve and you know and take take the appropriate steps forward and so what i'm getting at here is i think that this framework helps to uh, initiate that that important conversation um, about what we want to see in, in our in our future in terms of our environments in terms of our water infrastructure and provides a bit of a, a framework to to explore how we might get there yeah ted i mean i've known about this eads framework since it first came out in nature climate change a couple of years ago and every time i hear you talk about it i feel like I learn more and I understand the nuances a little bit better. I'm really excited to follow its progress over the coming years as it becomes more widely applied. Ted, thank you so much for joining us today and keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks. Bye, guys. We'd like to again thank our guest, Dr. Ted Grantham, for joining us on the show. I feel like he did a really good job of giving us a quick rundown on nature-based solutions and some of their adaptation benefits. And I think more importantly, we heard about the work that's been done to develop and mainstream a practical and scientifically robust way to better incorporate ecosystems into water management, even in the face of uncertainty. This Eco-Engineering Decision Scaling Framework, or EADS, allows decision makers to compare different management objectives, whether environmental or engineering-oriented, to explore how different decisions will affect different outcomes. In part two of this episode, we'll take a deeper dive into EADS and hear about its real-world implementation. Make sure to continue listening by clicking on over to part two. And don't forget to subscribe and give us your reviews on iTunes. Thanks for listening. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation is directed and edited by Alex Maroner.